the biggest change of mind in my life, which has dominated a lot of other things, is changing my view about who my political allies should be. So I started in my life when I was 16 years old, I joined the Labour Party. Then that became increasingly untenable for me and I joined the SDP. And I was in the SDP all the way through until it finally completely collapsed. And in other words, I'd always regarded the right place for my politics as being the centre-left. And I suppose I became a little bit more fiscally conservative. But my primary change of mind was just whether my views belonged in the bracket of centre-left and with centre-left allies, or whether I wasn't better with centre-right allies. Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Alex Chesterfield, Behavioural Scientist and Depolarisation Project Associate. You've just heard from our guest today, Danny Finkelstein, who changed his mind on who his political allies should be. But before we get to that, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email newsletter at depolarisationproject.com. We promote this show with Open Democracy to their 8 million regular monthly visitors. And you can find the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net forward slash depolarisation project. I'm joined for today's episode by my co-hosts, CEO of the Depolarisation Project, Ali Goldsworthy. Hi, Alex. And Communications Director and Depolarisation Project Associate, Laura Osborne. Hi, Laura. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ali. This was a wonderfully thought-provoking conversation with Danny Finkelstein, Associate Editor of The Times and Conservative Peer in the House of Lords. But I did come away feeling slightly gutted that someone as analytical, smart, thoughtful and balanced as Danny would never go into or probably make a good politician in the current status quo because of what he was saying about how debilitating it is being able to see so clearly both sides of an argument when really the world around you wants you to be so certain. Ali, what struck you most about our conversation? Yeah, for me, it was Danny's insights on trying to change other people's positions in a way that allows them to say face. So when someone has said something that might be a little thoughtless or is based on facts that are completely not correct, how can you enable them to change their mind and reflect on that in a way that doesn't mean they double down on their views? Because that's so tricky. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Laura? What should listeners look out for? I was really interested in the questions Danny put to us actually about whether polarisation really is getting worse. And he talked about different kinds of identity politics over the ages. And it made me think two things really. The first is that phenomena change manifest differently and it doesn't necessarily make them better or worse. Connected to the second, which was that even if it looks similar to what you've seen in the past, we still need to interrogate its impact on our present And what I really liked about talking to Danny about it was not only the challenge that he presented, but also his willingness to go away and find out more about it, something we can all learn a lot from before becoming committed to a stance or a particular viewpoint. With that in mind, let's play our interview with Danny. Hi, Danny. Welcome to Change My Mind. Hello. You're both a politician and a journalist. In these roles, to what extent do you seek to change minds versus reflect or mirror how people might be changing their minds? A bit of both. So I do think one of my roles and something that I'm good at is trying to analyse and explain politics and how people vote and what decisions people make and why they make them. And that's been quite a lot of a large part of what I've written about. But naturally, I have my own opinions and 
in particular when it comes to defending the whole idea of uh, political democracy and the rule of law and a liberal and stable capitalist, I suppose, society, I do express my view, obviously. If you also had a role in changing people's minds, and can you tell us a bit about where you've been successful in that? What have been the key elements, do you think? Well, I have tried really hard to you know, defend certain things that I believe are very important. And there are obviously policy things. So, you know, for example, I've been very interested on crime matters, promoting the idea that it's just to give a small example, that it's very dangerous to have a single trial on multiple charges, and to explain what the dangers are of that. And I weighed in on questions of miscarriage of justice. And I hope I've changed some minds. But A more broad preoccupation is what I would describe as a sense of proportion. Now, that can, I suppose, be quite arrogant. It means that you think you get the world in perspective and other people don't. Uh, But I do think a lot of politics consists of people shouting at each other without really trying to listen. And I hope that I've made a bit of a difference in trying to explain that that isn't a necessary way to conduct politics. Thanks, Danny. And have you been able to persuade other people to listen more or indeed to listen better? It's hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, it is. you go up to somebody and go, have I changed your sense of proportion? But I, I definitely think it makes a difference if there are people in the political sphere who are trying hard to say, well, we don't all have to talk to each other like that. We don't all have to regard each other as knaves just because we have a political disagreement. And I think that has been helpful. And then also you can, by the way, have an influence just by good analysis. So I know that when I wrote an article during the debate in the Labour Party about whether to split, I used analysis to explain that I didn't think a split would be successful. Electorally, I didn't think it would be successful. And I know that that did have an impact on some of the people who read it because they told me. Weirdly, that in some ways, morally, I felt that people shouldn't belong to the Labour Party while Jeremy Corbyn was leader if they didn't want him to be prime minister. But analytically, I thought the leaving Labour Party would have was almost certainly a dead end, which is what indeed it proved to be. And Danny, if you applied that same analytical approach to big picture issues as much as you have to more specific issues, for example, the one you mentioned before in the justice system. So one of the things that I, I try to do is to write about people's biases, the way that they have cognitive dissonance, that is that they people double up on the things that they believe, the way that people can often be influenced by all sorts of things that they can't perceive. And I certainly have brought that analysis. So one of the things that I was very keen on was the whole bail system, police bail being used over and over again to bail people and therefore court cases often taking you know cases taking often a year before someone was informed that in fact this case was going nowhere. I mean that was a an, an instance where I argued the case in the paper and I also argued the case with people whom I knew in politics, one of which was Theresa May, who was quite receptive to that idea and it did lead ultimately to changes in the law. I mean, not because of me so much, but I was obviously a part of it. Another big issue where I know uh, I did play a role because he was kind enough to say that was on the issue of gay marriage. So at a very early stage of the gay marriage debate, I begun to argue that it was a conservative position because it was something the Liberal Democrats had supported. And then there was a question, could the Conservatives follow it? And I 
helped to make that argument. And again, I made that argument in print at a time when it wasn't very common. And then I followed up, I put a lot of time to try persuading David Cameron that it was the right thing for him to do. And he's kind enough to say in his book that I was one of those people who persuaded him. So Danny, you've you've told us about times when you've successfully changed people's minds or influenced and helped bring it about. Is there a time when you've tried to change someone's mind and it's really backfired? Well, I think it probably often does. I mean, sometimes I don't know about it. But when you try to tell somebody they're wrong, they don't normally go, oh, you're right, I'll change my mind. Sometimes you entrench them in their opinion. And recently, I wrote a column about what I called the Yorkshire pudding test. The origin of it was somebody suggesting that the statue of Harold Wilson should be removed from Huddersfield Town Centre. And this, I realised, was actually the suggestion of only one person with the name and avatar of a Yorkshire pudding. And so I said that quite a lot of times we have these big debates in politics and nobody is actually on the other side of it. So we're having an argument with nothing, or at least with very few people. And we get ourselves into a furious row because we don't appreciate how big the forces align on one side or the other. And I, I gave us an example in that, the fact that there's a massive argument going on about whether or not there is such a thing as sex, right? In other words, as opposed to gender, male and female sex. And that actually, there isn't really very, there aren't very many people at all, uh, you know, for in statistical sense, almost nobody who thinks there is no, no such thing as sex. But there are a lot of people who are very involved in this argument, who were just really annoyed that I was saying that that wasn't. And they often said, look, there's this professor who says this. And I said, yes, but that's one professor. Anyway, I realized the more that I engage in that argument, the more annoyed, um, not only probably one side, but both sides of this row got. So sometimes when you weigh in like that, you make things worse. And did that mean that you stopped weighing in on that subject? Well, it's an interesting thing. There's a bit of a tension, I suppose, in that respect between my desire to change things and my desire to express my opinion and my job of expressing my opinion in the paper. Obviously, when you write for a paper, you kind of don't mind people disagreeing with you. You don't mind if they dig in because it creates a bigger controversy. I wrote a column only last week about the relationship between social liberalism and prosperity. And several people have responded to that disagreeing with me. But that I actually found quite good. I enjoyed it. It's helpful to me if my columns get discussed as a journalist. But obviously, you don't want to dig people into that position if you're trying to change the world. I suppose sometimes the job of being a provocative columnist and persuading people can sometimes be at odds with each other. Where do you see people, it might be politicians, it might be other journalists, typically go wrong when they're trying to change other people's minds? Well, I had a friend of mine who came to me and he said he was going to make redundant a mutual friend of ours. And uh, he was dreading it. And I understood why he was. And then he did it. And afterwards, I said to him, how did it go? And he said, actually, it went really, really well, because I managed to give him a convincing story, which he could explain to everybody about why he was leaving the organization. And he didn't feel, therefore, like he was uh. being fired. And I think that uh, this was a profound and profoundly clever insight. The truth is people need to be taken off the hook of their position. So very often you find that people fly at you in social media, really angry with something. And if, and if you just respond back, you know, you idiot, don't be so rude. Why are you saying that? You get absolutely nowhere. People double up on their position. So often I go, well, that's a very, thank you for making that point. It's very interesting. I'm going to reflect on it 
And this point that you made was undoubtedly right. So I think we agree on that. And on this point, um, I've actually, I'll need to think about that again, because you've clearly, you know, you've clearly influenced me. Uh, But if I may say so, this other point, I don't think you're right on. If you do it like that, you can, I think, you know, I very often, when I first started, you get a lot of angry emails. And now since Twitter, a lot of angry tweets from people who disagree with you. People sometimes find it quite hard to tell the difference between disagreeing with you and thinking that you're awful or horrible or that you want everyone to die or be poor or whatever happens to be. Um, You have to remember their position and not entrench them in it. You're trying to unhook them from their position, right? You're not trying to sort of blast them out. You've got to make concessions. You've got to help them develop a story which allows them to integrate their the position you want them to take from the position they've got. So you're trying to tell them you're right and the point that I'm I believe fits with what you think already. Therefore, you, you're not required to abandon anything or uh, admit mistakes or admit errors because people really don't like to do that. And if you can do that, you can hook, you can certainly unhook them uh, from their position. That is really insightful. I think on two levels. So one, when you're talking about the redundancy story, I guess the importance of yeah saving people's or f- people feeling they can save face, I think is one thing. And the second thing, maybe maybe think was in an organisational context about we call it interpersonal risk taking and why people don't often admit mistakes or admit errors, um, uh, which means that smaller problems become much bigger problems. And it is because they fear the reaction. And actually, when you can react in a way to mistakes and errors being disclosed, and other people see that, then you can start to see change and more people actually admitting what has gone wrong and how they can how they can learn from it. Yeah, you've got to make the psychological cost to people of changing their mind or moving their position easy to pay. Yeah, much lower. The cost much lower. Danny, what you said really reminded me of a conversation we've had with a woman called Catherine Boyle, who was a Washington Post journalist and is now a VC out here in the Valley. She's got really quite a firm view that to get ahead in journalism now, it's essential that you take extremely strong positions on social media to build a following and then go from there. As someone who established their career pre-Twitter, I wondered if you thought that you agreed with it, but also how you felt about if you've been able to reach some of the positions you are in now by taking the more nuanced, thoughtful and reflective decisions that you have. Yes, I actually think I could be. I, 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 it happens to be my position, but I worked out quite early that there, were, in addition to it being my position, there was a gap in the market for that position. I think that people are quite hungry for both analysis and cool and polite response to questions and to and a civilized uh, engagement and a moderate position um, so for example there was quite a a lot of interest in my position after the brexit referendum which I, I i was against brexit but i argued we'd voted for it and now we had to do it i had in other words a position that in some ways you could say was completely friendless but actually lots of people quite appreciate it on both sides i think you can find an audience for the sort of journalism that I want to do, the sort of opinions I want to express. But admittedly, it's important to have a an editorial team that supports that position. So, you know, the Times has been a very good place for me. All of my experience in looking at analytics and sharing and things like that is those kind of articles are not what drives visitors to a website and they aren't necessarily what drives subscriptions. Are you suggesting that there is also a, a financial market for non-polarizing and thoughtful content? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, you'd probably have to ask the times that, but I think so. 
you've got to make sure that your column isn't blah, right? You do have to have a point and you have to have an argument and you have to say something. And, you know, although I think of myself as being moderate, probably some people will read it and think that they're completely immoderate positions. But, you know, you, you, I'm writing a piece tomorrow which is about football and it's going to support big money football, right? Which is a very controversial position. But you can do that in a thoughtful way that what I try to do is, and it's all about how you change people's minds as well. I try to to listen to how other people put their argument and try to make sure that I don't end up in side rows that I'm not where I'm not actually in disagreement. My most recent aggravating experience was an article that I wrote which was an attempt to persuade people who unthinkingly supported Winston Churchill that although Winston Churchill was undeniably a great man and I personally know that because you know, I don't think my family would be alive if it wasn't for Winston Churchill. So I'm very seized of his greatness. Um, but he was, without any question, a racist. You can't really deny that looking at his record. That was the argument I wanted to make. The headline on the article was, Churchill may have been a racist, but he was a great man. Whereas really what I was writing was, Churchill may be a great man, but he was a racist. There's a subtle difference. I had 17,000 retweets from people who thought who were part of Black Lives Matter or young people who, who felt like I was saying racism made you great, basically, because they didn't read the article. They only read the headline. That was the sort of attention I could have done without. It was very frustrating because you can't correspond with 17,000 people and say, I really wish you'd read the piece. You've misunderstood what I was trying to say. So sometimes that I do appreciate that a polarised opinion can attract a lot of attention, not necessarily of the sort that I want. One of the reasons the Times has gone behind a paywall is so that we are less reliant on the individual hit of provocative comment, and we can actually say what we think. You do want a, a piece to have an oomph. It has to have a point. You don't want to meander and say on the one hand and on the other. I don't do that. But I do try and write what I say in a kind of civilised and, if all you know, I hope try to do it. It sounds a bit arrogant, I suppose, putting it like that. But I try very hard to try to put it in a civilized uh, and reasonable way. You know, let's say, for example, Jeremy Corbyn, somebody with whom I have strong political disagreements. I tried, I worked really hard to write extremely honest, you know, to take an extremely honest view, to directly drawn from his own statements about what he thought, rather than merely say he was like dreadful. And it didn't stop people thinking that's what I was saying, but it was. I suppose it was more defensible and times readers wanted to, to read that sort of thing, I think. A lot of our work looks at effective polarisation, so where people increasingly align together under political views and party political labels. And that becomes, I guess, the label that people hang out under. So people would increasingly ad identify someone, I guess, as a Brexiteer or Remainer, if you're in Scotland, as a uh, Nat or a Unionist, um, you know, out here in the States, Democrat, Republican. Yes, where we dislike and distrust those from another side, irrespective of whether we actually agree or disagree on something. How much of a rising cleavage or cleavages it was in society? There's an awful lot of talk about us becoming more polarised. And what I'd really like to see is more data uh, to check whether that's actually the case. I mean, let's take the example of of identity politics. Um, everyone's saying, you know, now we've got identity politics and people are divided because of their identity. But in reality, you know, we always had a class-based politics. Now we've just got identity, which was an identity form, a form of identity politics. I think politics is profoundly demographic. People find demographic coalitions. And uh, we moved from that to uh, 
to different kinds of identity. So it may be that what seems like it's polarization is in fact just a lawful lot more information and people able to access each other's opinions much more than used to be able to. I was going to say, there is, there's definitely some research to show that in the UK. And you, I'll send it to you afterwards and I'll put it in the show notes from LSE last week, showing that people are increasingly aligning under opinion and political based groups, because you're right, a lot of that research is out here in the States and it's quite profoundly different. But it does seem to show that that trend exists beyond, you know, around the rest of the world and in the UK. Okay, well, I'd, I'd like to look at that carefully. I'm obviously, you know, uh, I can, I, I'm very open to being persuaded that is the case. But, um, you know, where, when, when it, we've had this recent, we're having this debate about cancel culture, which, by the way, is, I think, is more of an issue in the United States than it is in Britain, but it's, you know, something that's important here. And I think one of the reasons is that speech of all kinds is more oppressive upon people, makes bigger impression upon people than it did 20 years ago. Because Actually, most of the time, 20 years ago, you couldn't hear what someone else was saying, right? And now you can sometimes have a thousand. Well, I gave you the example earlier of 17,000 retweets of an incorrect interpretation of my headline. That was really, really oppressive, if I'm honest. It was. But normally, I wouldn't have even been aware of people saying those things. And they wouldn't have been able to circulate them to each other. So I think to some extent, it is. Uh, and, and, and then on the other, both, both sides then feel, so amongst you feel that, our previous relaxed attitude to letting people say anything um, is something they, that makes people feel unsafe when 20 years ago it wouldn't have impinged on people anywhere near as much. And on the other hand, the people who, you know, like J.K. Rowling or whatever, will find uh, 20,000 angry dis- people who disagree with her, uh, which actually isn't that many, uh, but if you see what I mean, 20,000 people, but it's very oppressive to her. And that, I think, is one of the reasons we've got this feeling of, of sort of that there is this cancel culture uh, debate. Um, it's about the ability of us to access information. So I, I think that um, there's definitely an issue of us sharing our opinion more, having more opinions, but whether or not, you know, so well, there was a study, for example, about Facebook, um, which suggested that far from it being the case that Facebook means that you've got a stream of information that reinforces your own view, which is the uh, normal way that we talk about Facebook when we are being alarmist about it. Uh, actually, uh, what it means is that you keep in touch with people whom otherwise you wouldn't bother with, somebody that you were at school with who's now a nurse somebody who works as a gardener as well as somebody who works as another journalist um and um that you share their tastes because they're in your feed um and you share and you learn what they're saying whereas normally you would actually only be restricted to quite a small group of people that is interesting i guess i think the counter challenge to that would be that are we actually reading and taking on board what other people say when they're from a group that we disagree with um, so it's almost like what you were saying that people were people were disagreeing. People weren't really hearing what you were saying, but they were disagreeing more because it's just a messenger effect because of what people think you stand for and what you represent, and disagreeing with that. And actually, your your opinions, I guess, removing your label is probably are probably pretty similar. So I, I'm I should be clear. I'm only discussing uh, whether that's increased over time. But what I do agree with, whether or not. That turns out to be the case. It's very interesting research. I'll definitely look it up. People definitely do look at opinions like that. Um, They form opinions a little bit by who else you know or who is in your group 
who holds that view. People are very, very unaware of the extent to which they're holding views because that view is in their own interests. And it's extremely difficult sometimes to separate your own interest in your head from the public interest because people think of themselves as good actors. So therefore, they think that what they're doing must be in the public interest. And so our mind plays tricks on us. Our, 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 our brain is the lawyer of our emotion. Whether or not it's changed over time, it's definitely a big problem. And I suppose it's more present because we now have so many ways of expressing our opinion to each other and rejecting each other's opinions. So I wonder then, Danny, if we might go in for the main question now and ask you about a time when you've changed your mind on something significant. What was it and why did you change it? Well, I thought about this a lot. It's a really interesting thing to be asked. I thought about all sorts of policy things, but I actually ultimately realised that the biggest change of mind in my life, which has dominated a lot of other things, is changing my view about who my political allies should be. So I started in my life as a uh, when I was 16 years old, I joined the Labour Party. Uh, and then that became increasingly untenable for me. And I joined the SDP. And I was in the SDP all the way through until it finally completely collapsed. And in other words, I'd always regarded the right place for my politics as being the centre left. Uh, this was a little bit connected to political views, which I slowly but surely began to think weren't right. So, for example, I supported the income, I and mean, I was only 17 or 18, but I supported the incomes policy of Labour governments, for example, which I later began to think was a ridiculous policy. And I suppose I became a little bit more fiscally conservative. But my primary change of mind was just whether my views belonged in the bracket of centre-left and with centre-left allies, or whether I wasn't better with centre-right allies. And the reason I cite that, it may seem like it's not really a policy issue, but so much flows from making that choice, actually. You can't be an expert on everything. You can't even be interested in everything. And so when you form a political alliance, you end up, I suppose, contracting out your bits of your politics to your allies, right? You accept and go along with the things that they think are the right things to do in areas which are too arcane for you to be able to follow it. So for me, it was the big change. And here's what's interesting about it from the point of view of changing your mind. I had to be a sort of effectively kicked out of my old opinion. The STP actually collapsed, right? So it really wasn't viable for me to remain. I had the chance to think again completely. I think it's much harder when you, you know, and it certainly was, I know, for some people who, who joined the SDP from the Labour Party, they found it really difficult to make that choice because they were leaving behind loyalties and friends and things that they'd said. And for me, it wasn't the same because, you know, the SDP had so completely collapsed. So it made it easier to move my position. But undoubtedly, if, however much I might claim consistency in other areas, that was a very big and I suppose made inconsistent my political life for all that my politics hasn't changed very much. Ali, I know you were desperate to ask some questions about Danny changing parties. So do you want to come in here? (laughs) (laughs) How did your former tribe or tribes, let's look at it in that way from the centre-left, treat you when you you moved over? What happened then? And how welcome did you find it? Well, something that was very important in my change of mind was I worked as a journalist in a a trade a technology newspaper company, right? So we made we made specialist journalism for 
uh, the computer trade. And actually, it would, I was involved in sort of some of the first newspapers and magazines about the internet. And what happened there was that they had a massive strike, which I thought was of journalists, which I thought was completely absurd. I totally disagreed with it. I joined in it for about three days. And eventually, I thought, I cannot in all conscience carry on with this. It's ridiculous. And I'm going to go back to work. So I did go back to work, crossing the picket line and ending up editing this newspaper all by myself. But with I sort of rang friends and they sent in. I knew nothing about computer networking. But we got the paper out a few times. And that was a big moment for me in terms of thinking, do you know what? I think maybe I'm trying to be right wing on the left. Maybe my politics doesn't really belong in this um, area. And the thing that's interesting about it is people make all sorts of assumptions about your politics and you on the basis that you're a Tory, right? So they, that implies to people, and I'm constantly encountering it. And I, I genuinely, I think they really actually do think, I don't care if people are poor and I want the NHS to collapse or I don't mind about it. And I sort of want a kind of night watchman state absurd things that I don't think in a million years, but it's attached to that. And it is, I suppose it's, it's sort of, it was quite interesting to encounter that view to some extent, I suppose, or encounter it online. I remember in some uh, meeting once with somebody said to me, in your political life, what has it been more difficult being, a Tory or a Jew? Um, I thought, and I said, well, funnily enough, before 9-11, it probably was being a Tory. Truth is that um, it, it was a sort of a bit of a shock in terms of the way that other people saw one, but nobody that I... Because of the way that it happened, because of my main politics had been really in the SDP, because the SDP had collapsed altogether, it did leave political to some Polly Toynbee, who I much admire, he was a very capable journalist, a brilliant writer of Collins, actually. But she's pretty cross with me for joining the Conservative Party. She thinks it's completely beyond the pale. And we were political allies in the SDP. Uh, and she's written that several times. She thinks it was completely without that principle and all that. And I, you know, I just disagree with her and I have to suck it up. And peace, she's entitled to her opinion. When she does attack you, does that reinforce your identity with the Conservatives? Or how do you, how do you feel about, you know, how does it push you in terms of your team identity? Well, it's an interesting thing because my automatic response to, to it is think, well, you're completely wrong. That's a total misconstruction of it. But I totally understand the logic of her argument. She, she in her head saw being part, being in the SDP as being a complete commitment to a sort of centre-left view. And her view, her politics have undoubtedly, when she knows a lot, moved more and more to the left. So for her to feel that she was sharing not just a party, but even a faction of a party with someone who's now associated with being on the centre-right in quite a public way, I can see why that is hard. And I suppose that her articles are attempting to defend the reputation of people who stayed on the centre-left but were in the SDP, and they don't want to be seen... By their, by their continued centre-left colleagues as people who palled about with Tories. So I kind of understand the motivation for it, but obviously I don't share the logic of it. Uh, and if I did, I would have made the same, uh, made the same decision. i tell you what it did do, though. It does make me, when I know that I was a political ally of Polly's and, you know, and I'm an admirer and friend and regard as one of my mentors, David Owen, who I often, you know, disagree, you, you, you can't any longer regard people, you can't, when you've done that, regard people as beyond the pale because they're not in the same political faction. And I had lots of really big disagreements with Andrew Adonis during the Brexit debates because I thought that his position that we should just ignore the result of the referendum was completely untenable. 
But it's impossible when you've shared a political you know, alliance with him to sort of regard him as a completely um, you know, terrible person. You, know, you can't see things that way. So it definitely, I suppose it broadened my outlook in one way. That's interesting. So overall, it's made you, do you think, more able to see both sides of the argument? Go back to what you said earlier about being very focused on analysis. Do you think it's partially having held a place in two different political tribes that enables you to do that so well now? Yes, it is. And I tell you, I, I do sometimes worry about it a bit, that it's sometimes a bit debilitating when you can see both sides of an argument so completely clearly that then, then becomes hard to pick. I'll give you an example of this, which was um, when the Conservatives introduced a policy on child benefit that they removed child benefit from upper eight taxpayers. And it caused an anomalous situation between families, depending on which part, whether both partners earn roughly half-half, in which case most might they might fall just below the level at which the child benefit would be withdrawn. And then one earner families where all the money came from one person and they'd lose the child benefit. And the more that I looked at that, I could see this was an anomaly. And it indisputably was an anomaly. And it would probably will discourage, as it were, a discrimination against one earner families. On the other hand, the argument for removing child benefit from higher rate taxpayers was also incredibly strong. And you couldn't do one uh, without the other you know they were they were still together if you did the policy at all you were going to end up discriminating between two earner and one of earner families and there was no way out of it so it was a straightforward choice between two policies both of which uh, had significant problems and you just have to pick and sometimes being able to see both sides of the argument are incredibly strong is actually a curse rather than a blessing i do regard it as being an extremely important realization that in most arguments, there are really strong arguments on both sides, and you have to pick one. It does prevent you from thinking the other side are really awful the whole time, but it can be sometimes a bit stifling. I'm really curious, when you moved over, did it change your views about the other side or other sides? Yeah, I tell you, the most, the, one of the most striking things, I was running something called the Social Market Foundation at the time, a think tank centre-left and centre-right think tank, sort of span centre. And we had Virginia Bottomley come to dinner with a group of people. David Willits has assembled. David Willits, who's now a colleague of mine, a Conservative peer, but um, was was also a friend of mine in the Conservative Party as well. And he was on the board of the Social Market Foundation. And, he, and Virginia Bottomley's entire evening was spent on how do we defend, improve, argue the case for the National Health Service. And it was a private dinner. There was only about 15 people there, I suppose. Uh, and so what she was doing was asking people that she thought might be sympathetic and friendly, what they, how we how we could set about improving the NHS. And I suppose that for all that, at a theoretical level, I might have rejected the idea that the Conservative Party didn't believe in the NHS. I suppose enough of it, of that argument had got to me that I was really struck by it, the way that that issue didn't even really come up. That in in its most private council, that was, you know, that was probably the most senior dinner I ever attended at that point. Uh, people, I now, you know, now completely standard thing. I, I'm having many many conversations with David Cameron or with Theresa May or with, you know, with Boris actually, you know, with George Osborne. All these people I've spoken to about the NHS at different times. They all share that view, but it was very striking to me at the first time. So that was actually a bit of a change in my perspective about Tories, uh, where I'd often thought it was sort of a controversial 
issue the national health service and turn out not to be really so danny if you could avoid choosing barack obama or donald trump as the answer to this question we'd be really grateful <laughs> because people have already nominated them quite a few times but we'd really love to to know about someone who you would like us to ask about a time they changed their mind on an issue and and why who who would you like to hear answer that question well that's interesting why don't i say george osborne george one of my close friends and uh, I always find it really interesting to listen to him, to, to listen to him talk. And I love, you know, we often do events. Maybe I'll even ask him this question together where I am the questioner and he gives the answer. And I would be interested in how, and, and he always stresses the consistencies in his view over a long period of time. I'd be quite interested to learn what he thought, where he thought he'd changed his mind. And that would be quite interesting. And, and the other person, so people I've worked with, actually, I think it'd be very interesting to uh, to ask William Hague that question as well. I think he's changed in many big ways, actually, William. Um, but very interesting to ask him about it. You know, he's somebody who's very robust and intellectually secure. Uh, so he would be an interesting person to ask. It would just be an interesting question to pose. I mean, I'll have the opportunity to do it now that you put it in my head, to pose to people that I've worked with or admired. But those are a couple of... Well I can actually tell you what George said because he teaches at Stanford and I, I cheekily dropped into one of his sessions once and asked him exactly that question. And he said what he changed his mind about was the value of wind and renewable energy. And he didn't say that, he didn't know my background or what I was asking about, so he wasn't pandering to it. He just said that he'd been really very unconvinced that you could produce renewable energy in a way that was low cost. And he'd been shown that actually you could. And he, he was almost delighted to have been proven completely wrong. I was really surprised by that answer, but it was in a very pleasant way. And he might turn out to be one of those people who can identify loads of things that he's changed his mind on. Because I thought what he might have answered was that he was much more centralist when he started and a bit dismissive about you know mayors and local decentralisation and became more persuaded by it. I've heard him talk about that. Danny actually and about the different needs uh, of the regions across the UK I guess stemming from his involvement in the Northern Powerhouse but he did say that he had a bit of a change of heart. So just I was just thinking about the media and about our, the conversation before about how we respond when people have changed their minds or have an argument and how we respond and how I guess important that is but do, I guess do you often what we've seen when we've been doing these interviews or, and also on the research is that it can be really costly changing your mind publicly so you know you get the 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 retorts of oh U-turn or you know flip-flopping and it can it can make leaders whether they're from business or politics or whenever look look weak. Just wonder whether you had a view a view on that. I've written quite a lot about the whole issue of of, uh, of U-turns because it's such a it looms so large in politics. Politicians think people don't want you to U-turn. Actually, people are always happy if you move from a view they don't agree with towards a view they do agree with. And if you move from something that it doesn't work to something that does work, and obviously it's better if you thought it through and you didn't get into the position that didn't work to start off with, uh, but a second best if in is moving to the position that works uh, from one that doesn't work. And so um, I, I think a lot of people, politicians, overestimate how much attention people are paying to the positions they had in the past, uh, to the commitments they've made. That there are a few examples where that's not the case, but usually that is when they've moved. Let's, for example, take George Bush's famous, um, George, the, the older George Bush, um, read my lips, no new taxes, and then he imposed taxes. The problem wasn't that he changed his mind. The problem was that he imposed taxes, and then they could use the you promised not to as the example to that. So providing that you're moving from a position that people 
don't like to a position that people that do, that people do like. I think there's absolutely no problem with U-turns, and I've argued this over and over again. It you 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 might pay a price in terms of a few days of coverage that you didn't you know that that you didn't accept the truth in the first place. And I suppose occasionally, if people feel that you're not really committed to the new position, but let's give the recent example of the of the government on and Marcus Rashford's campaign, right? It didn't matter in the slightest that the government changed its mind. What mattered was that they moved from a position that wasn't sustainable and people didn't like to a position that was and that people did like, right? And that was definitely the right thing to do. That's really interesting. I remember, was it Joe Swinson talking about that? Ali, the cost, wasn't it, of changing mind publicly and the media yeah. response? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Danny, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Before Ali, Laura and I digest this interview, we wanted to bring you a brief word from our partners, Open Democracy. Hello, I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We exist to bring you the latest reporting and analysis on social and political issues around the world. We're here to educate citizens, challenge power and encourage democratic debate, just as this podcast does. To find out more about us or to make a contribution to our work, visit opendemocracy.net. So now we've heard the full interview, was there anything you wanted to reflect on? Ali, do you want to go first? Yeah, for me, the journey Danny went on, on finding his political home, moving from one party to another and crossing the political picket line really stood out, you know, and how, as a consequence, he found that people made very different assumptions about him, depending on who his political allies were. And although he was slightly resistant to admit it, that really is exactly what effective polarisation is, people bringing different labels together and under a political label and making presumptions about what you will think as a consequence. I was also really struck by a more optimistic note that he said about journalism, that he thought there was a commercial case for making thoughtful, considered comment. And from the man who bought in the paywall at the Times, that gives me a little glimmer of hope. Yeah, I thought very much the same thing, Ali. That made me feel really optimistic about the future of considered journalism. And I also thought it was really interesting the points that he made about how we have to reduce the psychological costs of changing your position and that we can help other people do that. And again, that felt quite an optimistic approach. For me, I think it was that acknowledgement or his acknowledgement that politics is or can be too shouty. And that challenge of getting people to listen has really resonated with me after being a local councillor. Now, clearly being a local councillor in Guildford is not equivalent to the bear pit that is National Parliament. Oh, come on, Alex, stop putting yourself down. (laughs) But this did resonate with me after being, as I said, after being um, a local politician for four years. Uh, So I think although politics does clearly have have a long way to go, the fact that you can have an influence by good analysis, as as demonstrated by what Danny was saying, is really inspiring for me. Has Danny inspired you to think of a time you changed your mind and why? At the end of the series, we'll be doing a special listener's edition of the show. Email alison at depolarizationproject.com and tell us about what you have changed your mind on and the best response will get a copy of Danny's new book, Wizzed Out in the Post. So that's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Change My Mind. If you liked what you heard, don't forget that we have a full 
back catalogue of fascinating interviews with leaders. You can find them all by searching Change My Mind in your podcast app. Join us next week when we'll be crossing the Atlantic to talk to a former Marine and a former Obama speechwriter about what they have changed their minds on. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing, and to Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is our theme music. <laughs>